Has the Affordable Care Act opened the door for employers to consider self-funding? And what are some new techniques that can help benefit advisors with that conversation? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of Shift Shapers is sponsored by MyEdge, the premier provider of Form 5500 prospecting solutions for benefit advisors. Local, regional, and national advisors rely on this affordable, easy-to-use, real-time search engine to find their target prospects. For more information, visit our website at www.shiftshapersonline.com. In this episode of Shift Shapers, we're very excited to be speaking with Craig Lack. Craig is the CEO of Premium Reduction Strategies. He's also a best-selling author and nationally recognized healthcare expert. He's appeared on ABC, CBS, Fox, and in a whole bunch of national publications. He's also an expert on self-funding, and that's the topic that we wanted to talk with Craig about today. So with that, good morning, Craig. Good morning, David. Great to be here. Thank you. We appreciate you spending some time with the Shift Shapers audience. A little bit about yourself before we get started. Well, uh, a little bit about myself. <laughs> I've been in the industry for 25 years. It's it's almost hard to say that out loud. And I started uh, as a broker and have had a retail agency for a long, long time. And so it allows me to be able to have a very deep understanding of the pains that employee benefit advisors are going through today. And as a result, you know, I'm able to kind of cut through the fog and try to make things clear for them. In that spirit, let's start at square one. Some of our listeners I know are involved in self-funded and other of our listeners know what it is, but have never really worked in that market. So can you give us a 20,000 foot overview of the difference between how fully insured works and how self-funded works? Oh, well, sure. At a 20,000 foot level, it's as simple as this. When you're in a fully insured program, you're on a prepaid program. So you've agreed to transfer risk to an insurance company in exchange for a prepaid premium. In contrast, a self-funding program is going to be more like pay-as-you-go. So you're going to retain a carrier in some way, shape, or form. You may just rent their network, but you're going to interface with an insurance carrier who's going to buy you a special kind of insurance to cover unexpected claims for any individual or for the group. But you're going to pay the majority of your cost as a variable cost instead of a prepaid fixed cost. And so you will pay as you go. Now, you talk a lot about premiums there. You have a great mnemonic device around premiums. Would you share that with us? Yeah, absolutely. Think of premiums as crap. So what that stands for is the C stands for claims, obviously. Uh, R is reserves, A is administration, and P is pooling charges. And the point of the mnemonic device is simple. When you analyze that and you break it down into its components, you're going to have about maybe 7 to 10% of a expense for healthcare representing administration, which means somewhere around 90 cents of every dollar is specifically influenced by claims. 
which should tell you that's where you should focus and concentrate your efforts. Before we get into some tactics and strategies, if you're a benefit advisor and you're not working in this market, what do you recommend if somebody's interested in kind of learning more about self-funding and learning how to kind of incorporate that in their practice? That's a good question. You know, we, we talk about that on the self-funded working group for NAHU. Depending on which part of the country you're in, that's also NAHU, National Association of Health Underwriters. And so the point I like to make is, you know, we need to not only educate the brokers and agents out there and the employers, but, you know, we need to protect each other and we need to protect clients from the unknowledgeable, you know, inexperienced agents and brokers. And we can do that. National Association of Health Underwriters has a very good program that they've just started called the Self-Insurance, Self-Funded Specialist Program. So I would recommend they start there. It's a three-hour educational program. But the reality is, you know, people need to get through the learning curve quickly because the consequences can be significant for both the broker and the employer if they don't know what they're doing. And it's not as simple as just relying on the general agent or the TPA. So they may need to make a concerted effort to finding out the details and the consequences of what a decision to convert somebody from fully insured to self-funded can mean. And it varies quite a bit from state to state. So when I'm on the radio, I talk about the Affordable Care Act quite often, and I, I like to explain it as, you know, we have 300 million Americans in the United States, and that's 300 million markets of one. And what I mean by that is, you know, everybody perceives health insurance differently. And when you're an employer, we have lots and lots of variability from state to state, even from what part of the state you're in, the availability of carriers, the rules regarding stop loss insurance, et cetera. And so you have to get familiar with what the local rules are for where you're at. You talk a little bit about how this plays out in the conversation that a benefit advisor might have with a client or with a prospect and how that then dovetails into what the typical renewal process looks like. Okay. You know, an agent broker is going to have a conversation with their client along the lines of one of my favorites that a guy told me was he, he likes to ask the client, he says, you know, have you ever had the sneaking suspicion that a big chunk of your employees don't even use the health plan? You know, how can you benefit from that? So I like to ask the question, do you have any idea how much the good health of the majority of your employees benefits the bottom line of your insurance carrier instead of your bottom line? Wouldn't you like to know? You know, when you're on a prepaid program, it can't happen. So what I like to explain to benefit advisors is, you know, the fully insured carriers have these mechanisms where they get the high margin all over the place. So let me give you an example. When you get your renewal exhibit, if you happen to be in a state where you get a renewal exhibit on a mid-market case that's fully insured, some states don't provide any claims experience. A few do. There's a little tiny bit of transparency What they do when they hide margin is you're going to look for areas like their pooling charges. They can hide margin there. They can hide margin in their reserves, their admin charges, the renewal trend factors that they use. Those are all subjective. Even under the new medical loss ratios, I would dare say that the published figures for large group are 85-15 as far as the percentage split. But I think in reality today, the carriers have already reverse engineered this so that it's probably closer to 75%, 25% between claims and admin. And they're still arguing four and a half years later as to what exactly is admin and what's claims. So when we tie this all together and say, what's the renewal look like? 
I like to describe it as Groundhog Day. If anybody's seen the movie out there, nearly every renewal this year feels like last year, feels like three years ago, feels like five years ago. And, and that's what I mean by the, the Groundhog Day renewal process. So what, what has stood for best practices, what I call legacy best practices for so long, I'd say at least probably the last five to eight years, people are, uh, the mid-market is pooled if they're fully insured and they get a renewal. And let's just say it's been 11 to 14% pretty commonly. And the employee benefits advisor negotiates it down and then meets with the client and says, you know, kind of with their hand up, says, see, we started up here. We negotiated it down here. And then we show national benchmarks in between the two to say, see, we negotiated your renewal to be better than the national average. And that's what stands for best practices. And so the challenge has become, and the industry has changed over the last decade into this mechanism where the company with the the largest uh, capabilities binder for the value-added sale becomes the benefit advisor of choice sometimes in some markets because they're offering all these value-added services because they don't know how to do healthcare risk management. And so surprisingly enough, the Affordable Care Act does provide quite a number of tools which affords employee benefit advisors to change the conversation from the old legacy best practices into a new way of doing things. One of the questions, Craig, that we get all the time, you and I have both practiced in the self-funded arena, is what size group is appropriate for a self-funded plan design? What's your opinion about that? Well, there is no one size fits all. I mean, gosh, if you were able to get transparency on claims and you were able to do some sort of a biometric screen where you could try and get, according to Cigna's language, you can see claims up to two to three years in advance, then you could make an educated decision as to whether or not it makes sense to buy risk or sell risk. So there is no patent answer as to what size is best. For example, in California, Blue Cross and Kaiser lobbied the governor to eliminate self-funding for all intents and purposes for most companies under 50 lives. Now, we can give a variety of reasons there, but the, the bottom line, it was politics and anti-competitiveness. They didn't want the competition. They didn't want the healthy groups having the option to make a business decision on their own, so they lobbied the government to restrict a competitive option. So, you know, this is going on, actually, in all of the states. They can't attack self-funding directly, so they try to come in through the back door in trying to legislate the stop-loss reinsurance that is sold in the markets as a component of being self-funded. So what do I think about it? I think it makes really good sense, but you have to go in with your eyes open and you have to know what risks you're taking ahead of time, and that can be the biggest challenge. And now a word from our sponsor, MyEdge the premier provider of Form 5500 prospecting solutions for benefit advisors. Do you want to find prospects in your area without having to make cold calls, but with a warm introduction from a network relationship or the prospect's accounting firm? How about finding companies that are out of compliance on their Form 5500 filing? What if you could find prospects that are paying more than standard compensation for their products and services? MyEdge makes it easy to create a pipeline of only qualified leads, and you'll set yourself apart from the crowd when you know how to build a targeted, value-add strategy for companies you want to work with. Clients and prospects always appreciate it when their benefit advisors take the time to understand their employee benefits before they meet. Don't act and sound like everyone else. 
Use MyEdge and get the ultimate unfair advantage. To learn more about this innovative prospecting solution, visit our website at www.shiftshapersonline.com. We're talking about politics, so let's talk about ACA, which has changed so much in so many areas of most of our listeners' practices. How has ACA impacted the world of self-funding? Well, the ACA has, at its core, created a systemically inflationary addition to the already systemically inflationary insured rates that we had in the United States. So it's just exacerbated the problem and driving up costs even higher. And so as a result, it forces employers to say, guys and gals, employee benefit advisors, brokers, consultants, help us, right? What other options are available to us? Because we can't sustain double-digit rate increases for another decade. Our organic growth is strained. It's hard for companies to grow their, their revenues. And at the same time, their operational expenses are going up dramatically, which means profit margins are getting squeezed. And so when you tack on health care, which is arguably typically second or third largest operational expense after payroll, going up by double digits when their profit margins are shrinking and sales are hard to come by, it becomes a perfect storm. And so the Affordable Care Act is really probably as another one of the many unintended consequences driving people to look at partially self-funding as an option. So with the table set that way, let's talk about some tactics and strategies that benefit advisors might employ to have that conversation with their prospects and with their clients. Sure. When we look at the Affordable Care Act, they spend a great deal of time talking about personal accountability and the new taxes and The way I like to look at it from a pragmatic standpoint is I think it actually helps refocus buyers and sellers, hopefully, on the fact that we have a $3 trillion healthcare system that yeah, we we euphemistically call healthcare, which is really just a, a sickness treatment system because we only pay the supply chain based on a fee for service model, which means they get paid based on the volume of treatments that they apply to people. So rather than focusing on eliminating disease and treating sickness, the Affordable Care Act provides us the opportunity to refocus on promoting health. And so we start out fully insured and we look at, hey, if we just eliminate state premium taxes on our fully insured programs and state mandates and the health insurance tax that's part of the Affordable Care Act, we have at least a 5% head start just in taxes avoided when we convert and start looking at partially self-funding. So when you combine being able to promote health instead of eliminating disease, and we look at the taxes that we can avoid, we have a very nice head start just going into the Affordable Care Act. And so now, of course, four and a half years later, the law has been out, and obviously it's a tremendously fluid situation, and the law is going to continue to change, especially after this election. But there's, you know, new tactics and strategies coming out all the time. A very popular one, you know, people have been reading about are the, the bundled surgery charges or the reference-based pricing mechanisms. Those are probably have the two largest impacts on the plans. But just to, to tie it together with what I said earlier, when you're going to look at self-funding and you're going to look at how to have an impact, 90% of the dollars on claims. So there's really three key factors that anybody needs to focus on the number of claims, the size of claims, and the frequency of claims. And I'm going to talk to you today about a couple of strategies that have a dramatic, dramatic and significant reduction in the claims through their implementation. 
Great jumping off point. Let's go there. Let's talk about first something that I found very intriguing. You and I have chatted about it a couple of times, which is what I mean. I call it a spousal incentive HRA. Exactly. The spousal incentive HRA. So for those of you out there, read 2013-54. It came out September 30th of 2013. It spells out very clearly how HRAs can work moving forward into the future. Well, it turns out that our HRA program has been in force for a decade. Hundreds of millions of claims are being managed through it today. I recently gave a uh, talk in Los Angeles, and I was lucky enough to follow the mayor of L.A., and I spoke to CFOs, and we did a case study on a school district where we had implemented the spousal incentive HRA. It had uh, great resistance and consternation, I would say, for a couple of years before they decided to implement it, and the results of our case study indicated and showed the CFOs we saved them a net $7,750,000 in the first eight quarters of the program, and now the school district wants to expand the offering to early retirees. And so the spousal incentive HRA at a high level accomplishes the ability for an organization to say, let's keep everything the same. Let's keep your benefits the same. Let's keep your contract the same. Let's keep your agent the same. Let's keep your stop loss the same. However, let's modify eligibility a little bit. And what we're going to say is, in an ACA-compliant way, if you're a spouse covered under our plan and you're eligible and entitled to coverage where you work, group coverage where you work, then you need to take that coverage. You're going to have to take it. But what's unique about our program is on a voluntary basis, we allow the employee and the children to enroll in the spouse's plan as well. And so, of course, the next question is, well, why would somebody want to enroll in their spouse's plan instead of our plan? And it's a good question, and and here's the essence of the program. So by creating an incentive program so that it's a richer benefit and a greater choice to select and enroll the, the spouse's group plan, what we can do through the spousal incentive HRA is provide an offer as a, as a case plan design. We can say, we're going to give you a 100% health care plan because we're going to reimburse you for deductibles, co-pays, and co-insurance when you or if you use your spouse's plan while you're covered under it. And if there's a premium differential between the two plans, we can reimburse you for that as well. So the essence of the plan is think of uh, the tax inversion stories that have been in the news for these organizations, these large companies wanting to keep their profits offshore by not bringing them into the U.S. It's been all over the news. Well, this is nothing more than a tax inversion policy, but using health claims. So what we're allowed to do is to be able to kind of offshore claims, if you will, because what happens is when we historically over 10 years, we're going to move somewhere between 5 and 20% of the total membership of a group is going to want to participate in the spousal incentive HRA. So just take an average case that moves 10% of the total members are now going to incur claims on some somebody else's plan instead of our plan. And so the net effect of that is we have case after case after case, dozens of cases, hospitals, municipalities, school districts, large employers whose claims are always underexpected. And as a result, you get a lot of indirect benefits because now the costs go down for the remainder of the employees on the plan. The claims uh, costs are going down because there's less claims being paid and stop loss premiums go down. 
because your claims are lower than expected. And in concert, the net effect is we have an average savings of 17% every year in reducing the aggregate claims experience. That's huge. Yeah. So when you, you know, if you're fully insured and you're looking at 5% premium tax savings and ACA tax savings, and you add in a spousal incentive HRA along with some other programs that are available in there, it, it is not uncommon to be able to save 15 to 25% in a year. That certainly is a great strategy. Now, we, we've got about three, four minutes left, and I know we also want to talk about another program that you that you're work with and that I think would be of real great interest to our listeners. So if we can kind of slide that in, that'd be really good, the deductible renewals program. Yeah, so, so think of uh, good driver discounts, right? Everybody knows in auto insurance, we, want to have, we, we expect to have all these different good student, good driver, et cetera, et cetera, but we've never had it in healthcare. Well, hey, the Affordable Care Act spends a great deal amount of time talking about how to use outcomes-based wellness programs, premium differentials, smoker, non-smoker premium differentials. Well, when you coordinate that into a plan design, what we see out there is that lots of employers have multiple PPOs. They even have multiple high-deductible plans or multiple HSAs. There's a cost to having multiple plans. What if you could offer a single plan that rewarded each member, each employee, so that their deductible was what received the benefit instead of a premium differential. So the way things work today after the Affordable Care Act, most of the outcomes-based wellness programs charge more based on the results of your biometric screen, or they create a premium surcharge for taking it or not taking it. So what if you could eliminate that whole drama and just say, your actual medical plan will be improved. So you, let's say, for example, you started as a $3,000 deductible. Based on a whole variety, very flexible incentives, we could use an outcomes-based wellness program. So if you had low cholesterol, low blood sugar, a good BMI, and you didn't smoke, you might have a $500 deductible plan. Whereas somebody else who says, I'm not taking any test, I'm not doing anything, and I smoke, great, you have a 3000 deductible plan. So everywhere in between... 3,000, 2,500, 2,000, 1,500, 1,500. If we created $500 good driver discounts to the medical plan, then you could have one medical plan with multiple options. Fascinating, fascinating couple of strategies. And I think things that will certainly be of interest to the audience. In the minute or so we have left, Craig, a question, where do you see the future going? I know obviously ACA has created opportunities and there are new strategies and tactics available where do you see self-funding going in the marketplace um, relative to most benefit advisors practice as we go through the next couple of years? I think the Affordable Care Act is going to drive more and more employee benefit advisors into fee-based programs. So I think the days of negotiating a less bad rate increase and still getting a 5% pay raise are going to start to evaporate. And as a result, that's going to drive the employee benefit advisors into figuring out ways to get compensated uh, based on results. And so you're going to want to look at, I think, the Affordable Care Act because the recent elections is going to result in more and more changes. I don't believe for a second anything is going to be repealed. You know, I equate it to a construction site. So the foundation's been poured. It's not going anywhere, but what the rest of the building looks like will remain to be seen. There will be more changes and that, uh, pressure to change the business model for the sales channel. Employee benefit brokers and consultants out there is going to drive them to 
strongly consider and not sell against self-funding, but actually move more and more companies towards it. Certainly makes sense. Craig Lack, CEO of Premium Reduction Strategies. Craig, thank you so much for a fascinating discussion and spending time with the Shift Shapers audience. Thanks, David. I'm, I'm a fan of the Shift Shaper show, and I look forward to having another discussion with you in the future. For more information about this episode or about any of our earlier episodes and to learn how to subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode, go to our website, shiftshapersonline.com. While you're on the site, leave a comment and register to be part of the Shapers community. You'll be the first to learn about upcoming specials like exclusive webinars and content you can use to take your business to the next level. Again, thanks for joining us for today's episode. And remember, you have the power to shape the shifts in your business.